0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University, and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Richard Freeland, President Emeritus of Northeastern University and author of Transforming the Urban University that details his leadership of Northeastern from 1996 to 2006. Richard, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Great to be here, David.
0: Could you start by just telling us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school?
1: Uh, Happy to, uh, because it is connected to this the story that we want to explore today is so I grew up in a small town in New Jersey, went to Amherst College um, and uh, then to Penn for graduate school. Uh, these these were the years that I was at Amherst and Penn were the 1960s. I graduated college in 63 and was in writing my dissertation in the late 60s. Uh, this was a time when... I thought the uh, the greatest issue that our country faced were the, the problems of the cities. This was the era of the crisis of the cities, the urban riots of the late 1960s, the culmination of the civil rights movement, which was all linked up with the urban crisis with the uh, African-American people concentrated in poor black ghettos in our cities. So at the time I finished my doctoral dissertation, which had nothing to do with urban anything. It had to do with Cold War foreign policy. But I, I decided I wanted to get involved in urban stuff. Uh, and uh, so I went to work for the Model Cities Program in Trenton, New Jersey, which was the capital of my home state, which turned out to be a fantastic learning experience uh, in many ways, but uh, relevant to today's discussion, one of the things I realized what you just don't know when you're that age is sort of what are the uh, institutional vehicles to get involved in various kinds of work. So I, Model Cities gave me a, I don't know if you know that program, but it was one of the late 1960s urban redevelopment programs coming out of Washington and it involved uh, planning teams in local urban settings, looking at a whole range of issues affecting healthcare in particular communities from education to to healthcare, to public safety, to economic development. So we got a good overview of what was going on that affected urban communities. And one of those things was education. And out of that, I concluded that uh, given who I uh, was at that time, and still am in many ways, the best way to have an influence on what was going on in American cities was to go to work in an urban university. Uh, And so I set out uh, at that point in my life, which, you know, I was uh, in my late 20s, thir- about 30, to um, uh, become a president of an urban university, which which to me meant a university that was deeply engaged in the life of its community and was using its resources to improve that life, uh, and it took me a little while, but that's the pathway that got me to Northeastern, ultimately, with a few stops in between.
0: Well, I thought you were going to say to go work for an Urban University, but saying you had already set your sights on a presidency—that that's that's impressive of uh, vision. Before we go to that career path, could you say what, what was what was the the subject of your dissertation, and what was it that led you to want to 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 be an academic and to do a PhD?
1: Um. It's, it's a slightly uh, offbeat story. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure it's ready for prime time, but, but uh, I, I had this, this, this notion coming out of college. Uh, two things. Uh, no, number one was I felt my education was very incomplete. Uh, I had gone to, to a public high school. Going to Amherst was a revelation to me about what intellectual life really was. Uh, and I felt even after four years at Amherst, I had barely scratched the surface of it. So I wanted to go to graduate school and just to continue my education. Uh, and also, I thought, good to get a Ph.D. because I'm going to get involved in these social issues, political issues. Maybe I'll even run for office. Who knows? Uh, but I'm going to need some fallback position because that's not a, a safe career path. So let me get a Ph.D., because that'll be a really interesting thing to do. Uh, Let me write a dissertation and then I'll go to work and doing what I want to do in public policy work. And at some point I'll probably uh, go back to teaching and want to teach at that point. But it was, so it was both an intellectual growth exercise and it was a kind of a insurance policy in case the rest of my life didn't work out the way I hoped it would.
0: And given, given your interest in policy and whatnot, what was it that led you to choose a foreign policy topic for, for, for your dissertation?
1: Uh, I had grown up in the 1950s uh, in a Eisenhower Republican family uh, and had been struck by the, 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 the preoccupation of the country with the communist threat. Uh, which as I started to study the history of the country in that period didn't make any sense to me because that was a period of great prosperity and, and uh, uh, really security for Americans. And yet there was this fear out there that somehow the communists were going to take it all away from us. So I, I started in, in graduate school sort of looking into that problem. Uh, and the problem I ended up focusing on was where did McCarthyism come from? Uh, what, what caused it? Uh, m- my dissertation was titled and was published ultimately by Knopf, uh, The Truman Doctrine and the Origins of McCarthyism. And I, I ended up exploring the interaction between foreign policy and the politics of foreign policy and the development of McCarthyism. And basically, I, I advanced the argument, which which I still believe in and which got some traction in the profession, that in order to sell cold war foreign policy particularly foreign aid to a republican congress that didn't believe in foreign aid uh the truman administration had to use the communist threat and so it it tremendously exaggerated the communist threat uh in order to as senator Van vandenberg, vandenberg told the president at the time if you're going to sell this policy, you're going to have to scare the hell out of the the American people. And that's just what he did. That's just what he did. And then and then lost control of it. Once he'd let the anti-communist genius out of the bottle, it was turned back against him. And it, you know, as you know, Truman became you know one of the people who tried to push back against it. But he had also earlier in an earlier time promoted it careful what you unleash.
0: And uh, we're doing this interview on election day, so we could probably devote a whole episode to potential lessons from that for our current day. But I, I want to dig into your book and, and your time at Northeastern. So if you'd set your sights on becoming an urban university president so early in your career, what did you, how did you go about looking for and navigating the, the, the jobs that would eventually lead you there?
1: Um. I decided I wanted to live in Boston. Having lived in Trenton for a year, I thought um, I wanted to be in a real city. My family had roots in New England. Uh, uh, I felt a cultural affinity for Boston. So I said, let me go to Boston and start there and see if I can get a job somewhere in the Boston. Uh, within the first week that I was, uh, In Boston, trying to figure out what to do with myself, uh, I drove past a building that said, University of Massachusetts, Boston. I said, there isn't any University of Massachusetts, (laughs) Boston, I I know. (laughs) But it turned out there was, but it was just getting established. Uh, And it turned out that the president of the University of Massachusetts at that time was a guy named Robert Caldwell Wood who had been the undersecretary of urban development in the Johnson administration and had become the secretary in the waning years of the Johnson administration. And he was the father of Model Cities. Uh, so I wrote him and said, here I am. Uh, I, I love Model Cities. I, I now wanna get involved in urban higher education. Can you give me a job? And uh, he hired me on to be you know, one of his junior staffers. He was just building an administration. I went to work at UMass Boston uh, courtesy of Bob Wood, uh, and stayed there for 22 years as we built. Had a great time, uh, did five or six different jobs in the course of that time. I ended up as Dean of Arts and Sciences. Um, and uh, meanwhile, wrote a book on the on the evolution of universities in the post-World War II period. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, went to the City University of New York as a chief academic officer for four years and that's when the northeastern presidency opened up and in my mind uh northeastern was like the perfect match for what i had wanted all along which was a a real urban university northeastern was the urban university in boston uh locally oriented commuter institution deeply involved in the life of life of the city um and uh I thought a perfect vehicle for my per, for my ambitions. I did not know at the time uh, I applied or even when I took the job, I'm embarrassed to say, that Northeastern was in deep trouble as an institution precisely because UMass Boston was suddenly developing. And the territory that Northeastern had long occupied, which was essentially the urban university for Boston, was suddenly being encroached upon by an institution with a good brand that charged about 25% of what Northeastern charged. And Northeastern was an inexpensive private. And so the kind of kids who used to have to go to Northeastern because it was the only place they could afford to go, because Northeastern always had this co-op program, which is what it was known for, but what was it was really a form of financial aid. You could go to Northeastern... Go to school for a semester, spend all your money, go to work for a semester, earn the next semester's tuition, go back to Northeastern. That's how you navigated Northeastern, but that wasn't competitive, uh, low cost, good quality. So Northeastern was losing altitude rapidly and needed to reinvent itself as a much more competitive and selective university to justify the price of private higher education. That became my charge. That's what I was hired to do: figure out a way that you can take this commuter university, well known as a blue-collar commuter local institution, and make it uh, make it more competitive and selective, so we can stay in business.
0: And I'd love to come back to that strategy, but just a couple of things on what you shared about your journey there. So. Um at UMass Boston, I think it would it must have been very exciting. I had an opportunity during my career to join the Keck Graduate Institute, the newest of the Claremont Colleges, just as it was being formed. And so it was part of the founding faculty. So to be at an entirely new campus, as you were, working directly for the president, I would have thought that would have been a, a very kind of
1: stimulating opportunity to have. Oh, it was, it was a young man's dream. I remember, you know, Biking to work, I was living up in you know the only housing I could afford in Boston at that time, up in Brighton. Uh, So I biked into work, and I thought every morning, you know, I'm just living a dream here. This is, I can't imagine anything I'd rather be doing. It was, he was a great guy. He was an inspirational mentor, real charismatic guy. He had all the right values. He was a serious academic. You know, he'd been the president of. uh, of Lawrence College in Apple in Appleton, Wisconsin, or Lawrence University, maybe in Appleton, Wis Wisconsin. He knew what for. He had a Princeton Ph.D., so he had serious academic credentials. But he wanted an institution that that was deeply in the heart of the city and involved with the city. And he loved my model cities experience. We ended up hiring my former director of model cities from Trenton. To come up and build an urban outreach program for UMass Boston, so, so I, you know, I was involved in designing two new colleges. I became dean of two different colleges. I I ran the planning office for it just one thing after another. It was just just great.
0: And so, given that deep experience there, and then being in one of the largest urban systems in the country in CCNY. Did you look at any presidencies either at UMass Boston or or in in, in New York before Northeastern, or was that the first time that you you went for? Well,
1: I, I I was was looking for uh, the right the right fit, um, and you know had uh, put put my hat in several rings. Uh, I would have loved to stay at uh, UMass Boston, to tell you the truth, if they had if I had seen a pathway to the chancellorship of umass boston i would have stayed there but uh you know when you've been at a place 22 years yeah sometimes you need to leave to right you you may have cracked a few eggs along the way (laughs) yeah so uh but the uh the northeastern thing came came and i needed i needed to become a chief academic officer i thought um to jump from a deanship to a presidency was uh so the provost job at cuny I, I always thought that, you know, that was a step toward a presidency that I needed to make my, my book, my big book on universities came out at just the time I became provost at, uh, uh, at, uh, CUNY. And interestingly enough, the, the, the Northeastern presidency became vacant during my uh, third year at, uh, CUNY, or, uh, and, um, uh, I, I said to Elsa you, whom you know my wife uh, this is the best job for me in American higher education I can't I can't imagine you know it's it's Boston it's it's the private you know this is perfect for me and it turned out my book had been about the uh, a, a group history of eight universities in Massachusetts between 1945 and 1975 one of which was northeastern so I knew a lot about the place. When I came up for the interview, they had my book lying on the table. They said, tell us about the book, and what did that book teach you about what we need to do? I, I, I said, I know exactly what you need to do, because I've been studying this for the last... So it just, it all just kind of was serendipitous, worked out in a wonderful way. So, so given that deep, you know, you, it's very
0: unusual that you'd both worked at a place for 22 years where effectively you you were a significant cause of Northeastern's problems because UMass Boston was taking their traditional students and you'd studied its whole history. So why did their troubles take you by surprise when you took the job? Because I would have thought
1: you would have had deep, deep yeah. <laughs> multiple sources to tell you that, that the challenges you'd be facing. It was a, it's a very good question. And uh, I, the answer is probably doesn't down to my credit, but i I ended my chapter on Northeastern, more or less saying, "I don't think this model is sustainable. But then I went to New York and I sort of lost touch. And I think I just hadn't read the papers carefully enough uh, for the last couple of years about what was going on in Boston. Uh, and uh, the the, uh, the search committee didn't go out of its way to to explain. The the difficulties that the school was in. They they were trying to attract a president. (laughs) Uh, But it turned out, you know, it turned out to be an incredibly interesting challenge because I said, "Okay, uh, I love the fact that this is an urban university. I don't want to make it not an urban university. I I don't want to, you know, just go, go the path of building residential facilities and, you know, making it yet another well-loved. So how do we, how do we remain? What does it mean to be an urban university? Because the standard meaning of that, as you know, is a kind of a, a modest quality commuter institution, not very selective, but a place of opportunity for young people who can't afford anything else, and and a, and a place that uses, uses its institutional resources to help its community. So, what can you keep from that, uh, and still be competitive? Uh, and you know, I, I realized that we had we had to become more selective. Uh, we had to become less local. Uh, we had to become residential, but that didn't mean. We couldn't be deeply involved in the life of the city. It didn't mean we couldn't be focused on uh, helping the urban community of Boston. It didn't mean we couldn't enroll kids from the Boston public schools. We just had to do it in the context of also becoming a first-class university. And so that's what we set out to do. To... And can you
0: say a little bit um, more in terms of in formulating what that strategy would be were you able to draw lessons from, from your book, Academia's Golden Age, and that study of the eight Massachusetts universities, did that help shape how you were thinking about what Northeastern needed to do?
1: I, I, uh, I concluded from studying those universities that, that there was a well-worn path from where Northeastern was to security, institutional security. In particular, Northeastern had always been one of three private urban universities in Boston. The other two were Boston University and Boston College. Uh, They all three for many, many, many years were local institutions, but attracted different parts of the local community. Boston College was a Jesuit institution. It was where the the Irish kids went. The Irish working class kids uh, went to B.C., uh, the middle-class Protestant kids uh, went to BU, which is a Methodist institution, uh, and, Nor- and Northeastern was the working-class urban university. That, that, so they carved up the local constituency, but they were all local. But BC and BU had the foresight in the 19, late 1950s to see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, and realizing that, that uh, the, the, what they were might have a limited shelf life because there was talk going back even then to do public higher education was starting to grow. Plus, the baby boom generation represented a real growth opportunity for them. Uh, they could now attract kinds of students that they couldn't have attracted before. So they both decided to go up uptown, you know, in those years, late fifties, early sixties to become, so to do all the standard things, you know, build dorms, become more attractive, become more suburban, and so build graduate programs. BU and BC were a little different than the sense that BU really started developing PhD programs and stressing graduate education. BC remained heavily as in the Jesuit tradition, a liberal arts college, but they both became colleges for affluent kids. And disengaged from the city to a substantial degree. Uh, so I said, w- what I learned from that is we don't want to do that because because neither one, I, I, I would say a different thing today than I would have said when we started, because I think that's the story's changed. But neither one really remained an urban university. What they became was two first class universities, private universities, both highly admirable in a way, but not. What you call an urban university, not deeply involved in the life of the city, not not putting strengthening Boston as you know a top priority goal for them. Are are you breaking up a little, David? Suddenly the screen is going blurry. And yeah, yeah, we're okay. Uh, So I learned. I, I learned what the pathway to institutional security was. for a a private institution and I learned how I didn't want to do it at Northeastern. So I, I, I basically made a bet. I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking in the first person here. I've got a team now of people, you know, I'm, I'm not running the whole thing by myself, but I was certainly part of this discussion. I said, I think there's a chance in this environment, which was now, 1996, uh, for a real urban university to attract top-quality kids, which wouldn't have been true when I was a kid, because when I was a kid, the idea of a top-class university was above all a small New England college in the boonies so, someplace. Kids didn't want to go to urban universities when I was graduate, at least the kids I, I knew didn't. But that changed by the By the 1990s, urban universities were really taken off and had a tremendous advantage in the small liberal arts colleges where Chatham being a case in point, although it's an urban liberal arts college. So it has, you know, some similarities with Northeastern in that respect. And I suspect that's been helpful to Chatham in surviving. Absolutely. Yep. Um, And I also thought, so I thought that's one thing. People, kids want to come to Boston. They want to come to cities were the best college town in America. And we've got this thing called co-op. And co-op has always been this kind of blue collar thing that was a way of paying for college. But by the 1990s, kids were worried about getting a job when they, even kids going to a liberal arts school, were worried about getting a job coming, which was not so true in the 1960s when I was, um, and I thought if we can figure out a way to turn the brand of co-op into a both and proposition that by combining classroom and work experience, you have an, actually have a richer intellectual experience and more growth. And by the way, you also graduate with some experience and with a resume. If we can change the brand uh, and, and, and make it perceived as a higher quality learning experience versus just a class, then we can make it work as an urban university. Uh, so that's what we we set out we, we set out to do to to uh, change public perceptions of cooperative education uh, uh, in such a way that they w- it would attract highly competitive students and do that by selling the notion of urban connectedness uh, combined with uh, with with job experience combined with first class classroom experience uh, and. Uh, you know, it was it was con- a little contrarian, but I think it was a very safe bet. I think you could see the trends all working in our direction. And the me to me, the thing which has been most surprising and really rewarding. Uh, you 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 may or may not agree with this, but I, I think what Northeastern came to represent in some ways is what has now become quite common, which is univer- highly selective universities offering their kids. What's now called experiential education, but it's just a variation on the co-op. It's a fancy name for what co-op was. Co-op is, if anything, a little more powerful, actually, because it's a full-time work experience, heavily supported. But I, I, I think that model has become the dominant model. Yep. Even at, I don't know if Chatham is doing that, but I, but I bet we, you're offering we, yep, internships we were, and you're advertising yep. that and you're saying, come to Chatham and get a classroom. Absolutely.
0: Every, every student needs to have at least one exactly. internship.
1: Right. Um, right.
0: But, but And I think you're absolutely right in that in retrospect, given where the country is now, that bet seems like an obvious one. But as you shared in your book, given that both BC and BU had gone from regional to national universities and succeeded. It wasn't that everybody immediately embraced the idea that co-op was the right strategy. So can you talk about what you did to build the consensus and that th- this was the right bet to make?
1: Um, well, there were, there were people at Northeastern who didn't believe that North, Northe- Northeastern had uh it was a diffident institution. It, it did not see itself as a first-class institution. It saw itself as in the shadow of these more successful, higher prestige universities. And there were there were people, you know, I can't give the numbers, but certainly some of the smart people around who thought about this on the faculty thought, uh, we, we gotta get rid of co-op if we're really gonna become a first-class. That would be the conventional wisdom. Uh, and we debated that, you know. But I thought, you know, this is this is this is really the only thing that anybody knows about northeastern. Once you get past Route One Twenty Eight, which is you know, the, the the belt around uh, the highway belt around Boston, uh, co-op is a is a real value. Here. Plus, we believed in it. We just plain believed in it as an education. I mean, you. You talk to anybody who had anything to do with Northeastern over the years, and and they would say, you know, this is really particularly, uh, you know, employers and adults. They would say, this is a great thing. It's an undervalued stock. This is a and, marketing. This is a marketing.
0: And problem. part of strategy, right, is how do you differentiate? And
1: this was your <laughs> yeah. differentiator, right? This, this was it. So yep. why, would, why would we give it up? Why, why would we give it up? What it was, was two things. Uh, uh, it was a marketing problem. We needed to change perceptions, both of Northeastern and of co-op. And it was a design problem because uh, co-op had always been viewed by Northeastern primarily as a way to finance education. We got to make sure the kids have a job. So the way the co-op department at Northeastern was evaluated was, do they all have jobs? What percentage of kids have been placed in jobs? And that meant they weren't as selective about the quality of those jobs as we needed to be. So the first thing we had to do was turn co-op itself into a high-quality learning experience. And that's where the politics got difficult because, uh, the, the co-op department, which had, you know, was very successful and very highly valued at Northeastern, uh, was also kind of isolated from the academic program, was was consciously and intentionally isolated from the academic program. We said, no, we got to make it, we got to embed it in the curriculum. We got to make sure these work experiences are quality work experiences, and they are really seriously connected to the classroom, to the major. Uh, So persuading the co-op professionals that that was a good idea, persuading the academic faculty, which had mostly had very little to do with co-op, that that was a good idea uh, because it had implications for their work as well as for the co-op. That was a lift and it took, you know, a long process of, of persuasion and, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, urging on, on the part of the, uh, the the senior leadership of the institution to persuade both both the co-op folks and the academic kind of, that this was the right way to go. But that's where um, y- you know the ranking thing came in as you as you know with, yep. that people who know anything about the northeastern story uh, from those years will tend to see it as a story about the rankings. Uh, because we, we did manage to, to go from a very poor ranking. We were like 160 out of 200 when we started to the top 100. And now Northeastern is in the top 50. Uh, and uh, we, we realized at, at a certain moment that that would be the, if we could do that, that would validate what we were trying to do in terms of brand development What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
0: Now, I wanted to ask you more about that because I thought it was a particularly gutsy thing early in your presidency to come out and say, we want to be a top 100 university. Folks in higher ed know movement in those rankings isn't isn't easy. And at the time, you had a 44% graduation rate. So, plus one of the biggest things in those rankings is the peer rankings right what do other think of you and you were strongly associated with co-op and working right. class and part and so doubling down on that while you're trying to change it, that that seems like a, a a pretty you know i would define as a serious stretch goal so what what gave you confidence you could do that and what were the specific things you introduced that would improve graduation and enable you to recruit more broadly nationally, because making that kind of progress, that's not, not an easy thing to do, particularly when you've got financial challenges and you don't have a big endowment and.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, To tell you, I mean, a lot of people said, People, people laughed when when I said this top one hundred. So we're going to be a top one hundred university. We set out the goal of being a top one hundred university by two thousand within the decade of, of the of the two thousand two thousand ten. Um, and a, a lot of people, including members of my board, will uh, they will tell you they they laughed at that. Um, and faculty members thought it was, you know, faculty members have total disrespect for the rankings, as you can imagine. I mean, what what could be more crass? Um, but my thought was two things. Uh, number one, Northeastern doesn't really have a choice. doesn't really have a choice. If you look at the rankings, uh, the private universities are all clustered in the top half and really the top quartile. Uh the lower tier ones, we were, we were down there with a, with a bunch of publics. I said, you, you can't have a high cost private, You know, we, we can't charge what we're going to have to charge and be ranked where we're ranked. It just doesn't work. So uh, the reason why you, you make this bet is because you don't have a choice. We got to get there. So I figured there are two options. One is we succeed and then we look good. And the other is we fail. Uh, but then the institution fails. So... Uh, just from, a, from that point of view, I thought, th- this, is, this is what I need to do as president. This is what I owe the institution. But I also, David, you know, I really, I, I, I totally believed that what we could do would be an, an educational an enhancement, that, we, that we, if we did it right, we could offer students a value proposition that was strong enough to attract top students. And that's where the redesign of co-op and the embedding it, the, the improvement of the jobs, the whole strengthening of the support system for co-op. We were really the gold standard in co-op. Northeastern was spending about $10 million a year. I'm sure spending a lot more now when I became president. on co-op. Every department had a full-time co-op counselor whose job was to, was to do job development and support kids. If the department was, you know, 15 or 20, they had two or three. I mean, we had really invested in supporting. it So there were there were things about the program that were weak and needed to be improved, but the core investment was there, and the world regarded us as the co-op, as the gold standard in co-op. P- people thought more highly of it than we did, actually, as, as an in- So I figured we, we really have something. We have an undervalued stock. Here, that that was my view of it. So, if we can redesign the co-op program, if we can leverage the attraction that bright kids today have to cities, and that bright kids today particularly have to coming to Boston, and if we can build the facilities that build the facilities that make it attractive, and then market this thing correctly, we can we can make this thing work. We can make this thing work. I hired a uh, an absolutely brilliant woman in terms of this, the the admissions thing, a woman named Philly Mantella. She's now the president of Grand Valley State in Michigan. And Philly brought um, Northeastern into the modern world in terms of enrollment management. She was a real wizard at the kind of financial aid leveraging and data analytics that teach you how to... Make the best use of your financial aid dollars. Uh, plus, she was a first-class administrator and attracted for. So she built a, a world-class admissions office. Um, she built a, a model of, you know, financial aid leveraging, which was uh, best in best in class. Uh, and so we we really, from a fairly early time, we were able to start to inch 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 up. Um,
0: and were there beyond the co-op piece, were there other things you did to, because a key part of that, that families, particularly if you're asking them to pay more, are looking at is graduation, to get from where you were to, you know, close to those aspirant peers. You you obviously, yeah. you had a good enrollment manager, you strengthened co-op. Were there other things you did that helped to move the needle on that?
1: Well, we, we, we invested enormously in uh, graduation rates and retention Philly headed, uh, she became a senior vice president. She was uh, in charge of the kind of cradle to grave student, student experience. Uh, so, you know, following all the, all the research on, on retention, uh, from, you know, early warning systems to more student support to mobilizing the faculty to take this seriously, um, we we built a it was our number one institutional goal. substantively was to st- strengthen retention, and uh, and we we were in in conjunction with a more effective admissions effort. We were really able to um, uh, t- to move that needle pretty pretty. Pr- in fact, that's one of the things that persuaded me we could make the top one hundred when I saw how rapidly, we were moving the needle from the 44% toward, we had a, we had a comparison group of institutions that, that we looked at that were ranked in the top uh, 100 universities. And we looked at their graduation rates and we knew we had to get to something like 75 over, over six years from from 44. When I saw the, the trajectory, I thought, you know, we can do this. We, we, we can do this if we just stay on course. Uh, so that was all part of it. You know, we were kind of in the boiler room around that. But but then there was a lot of investment in marketing. Uh, and then I have to say, you know, coming back to your point, the, uh, the, uh, the peer ratings on the marketing, you know, whatever you say about the rankings, people do pay attention to them. The marketplace pays attention to them. The, insta- the universities pay, pay, pay attention to them. And so the question of how you move the peer rating, and I think, you know, in the, in the book, I tell this story about how we mounted a campaign. I had a couple of political guys in my community affairs office, and they said, you got to think about this like a like a, a, a political convention. There are going to be uh, 780 votes in the convention because the, the peer rating is based on the view of the of the president, the provost, and the chief admissions officer, for you know, one hundred and twenty institutions. So that means seven hundred and eighty, whatever the math isn't quite right. Um, that's how many votes we got to we got to affect, and so we said, I said, that's a manageable number. We can deal with that number. Uh, so I had the presidents, uh, Philly had the the deans of admissions, and the provost had the provost, and we set out to get to as many of them as we could. And I, you know, I tell this story how I would, you know, I, wherever, whenever I was in a town, I would go into the president's of make an appointment, you know, find some excuse to go see him or her and go armed with data about how my numbers compared with their numbers. And I, of course, I always had numbers that made us look better. And these were institutions that outranked us, but I had better numbers. And I would did sort of point this out. And we did manage. It was actually moving up in the pure rating that got us into the top 100 in the, you know, in the last year of my presidency, so it was a and bunch, a whole bunch of things, and people are cynical about the ranking. You know, I, I, I made the case, and I make it. You know, we became a a much better academic institution. The rankings were tactical and necessary, but secondary to the real hard work of improving the quality of the experience, including and including retention rates and all the support that goes with that. I was
0: curious, as you went along that journey, one of the few, the, the only institution I know of that would compare with the quality of your co-op program also had a fairly similar rise in the rankings over these last 20 years Is Drexel.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Did you have much interchange with them yeah, yeah. as you both thought about sort of raising the co-op brand?
1: Yeah, we, we had a lot with them. Those are The president there was Taki Papadakis. At the time, there was a co-op association of presidents that we were both part of. Uh, And I remember talking about some of these issues with them because the the conventional wisdom then was that uh, no no co-op institution was highly ranked. All the co-op institutions were down more or less where Northeastern was and where Drexel was. And we thought some of that had to do with market perceptions of co-op but some of it had to do with the way the formula worked um, because uh, in computing you know one of the metrics is, as you know David is the uh, expenditures per student one of the measures of the quality of the academic program is how many bucks do you spend for each student and so you're dividing the, the operating budget by the enrollment. Number And they would always count the students who were on co-op as part of our enrollments, which they really weren't be, because they were off on co-op. So we set out to uh, persuade uh, Morse at U.S., Robert Morse, uh, the chief honcho at U.S. News, that he ought to subtract our co-op enrollments from the, uh, the denominator before he did the division. And so Taki and I went to see him and he said, you know, you guys make a really persuasive case, but I can't do it because if I if I fiddle with the formula, then everybody's going to have a story about why I should fiddle with the formula. So suck it up. It's rough justice, but but I can't I can't make a change. So we went back and said, you know, let's just do this. Let's just make the change because this guy knows we're right. He's not he's not going to punish us. So that year, both Drexel and Northeastern changed uh, changed our enrollment numbers to by subtracting the co-op kids. And I probably shouldn't say this, but well, I say it in the book, so I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> said it. Uh, they didn't punish us, and that 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 helped. But Drexel, Drexel, I think I think Drexel was a little slower uh, in terms of its rise. I I don't actually know where they are right now, but are, are they now? Uh, Equivalent to in terms I, of, I don't
0: know. I don't think they're quite as high, but I think a big part of what they did, which was similar to you, is they were actually a huge part along with Penn of, Reed, yeah. you know, University City is now a yeah. totally different place than it yeah. was 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's 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 a very exciting yeah. thing. And I, I, I know they, Taki unfortunately died much too young, uh, right about that time. And I think they, they but then they had a very, very successful president who later became i I think he was the um the vice president of penn with uh when when penn was kind of building its urban and penn was kind of a model for me because i thought you know they are really involved with the city in in a great way uh and yet they're an ivy league institution you know that shows me you can combine being urban and uh and that vice president i think is now the president of drexel
0: yeah, John Fry has had an no, amazing John, tenure. John,
1: yeah, John Fry, yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, So,
0: so I, I'm, I'm curious. You, you obviously you achieved your, your really big, rocks that you set yourself. Getting to be top 100, revitalizing co-op and integrating it with the academic, dramatically improving the graduation rates. Were, were there significant goals you set for yourself that you didn't achieve? What, what were the? Were there any? Disappointments in you know what you were trying to do during the te- your ten.
1: Well, I think the biggest the big the biggest weakness of my presidency uh, was in the financial area. Northeastern was a very tuition dependent, enrollment dependent, tuition dependent institution. It was obvious we needed to be more effective on the philanthropy side and on the fundraising side. And, uh, we did okay, but, but not as well as we needed to. And, uh, you know, I, I think I was, you know, I wasn't a born fundraiser. I was a born educator. I think I I was maybe a little more effective at. uh, and it, you know, the, the, the alumni had a mixed reaction to what we were trying to do. They thought, they, they thought we were trying to do the BUBC thing. And, and abandon kids like them. I, I heard that over and over and over again. Um, and I'd say, you know, we we don't really have a choice. What we're doing is trying to hang on to as much as we can of that traditional mission. As many kids, uh, you know, like you guys, is uh, but we we gotta we gotta attract people who can pay the freight. Um, but uh, I, I I think I, I've come to the conclusion that uh fundraising lags success you know I remember one of my development officers saying to me you know pe- people don't give to need they give to success uh and we we needed to be successful before the message was really going to work I I think and I didn't I didn't live to see you. Get, get all <laughs> but the your, pers- your your successors are benefiting from from right. the raise I, I I think there is some some truth to that so yeah so that's a uh, that's it. But my my if I had to name a, a single educational goal, David, as an educator, it was to, to demonstrate that combining classroom study and practical experience was a first class form of education, not a third class form of education. I wanted to demonstrate that to the industry. I, that was my if I had a single educational as an educator that's what I wanted to prove.
0: That and that's what you talk about as the practice-oriented education yeah, yeah, in
1: the book, yeah. right? Which, which I, you know, that's a yeah. term that never, I still like the term, by the way. Yeah. But it never it never took, but it's now, you know, I mean, experiential education has yeah. now become become the term. But I, you know, I think that is now perceived as a high-quality experience and a better-than-a-classroom-only experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I feel, you know, and I was part of the movement that made that happen. Lots lots of other hands on the wheel, too, but that that's the, the, the single thing I feel best yeah. about, in addition to and, the fact that Northeastern is thriving. And and I'm curious,
0: what one thing that comes through in the book, and you've referenced it uh, uh, today in the discussion, is that you thought of things, I think, more than most presidents I've spoken to from an organization design perspective, mm-hmm. thinking about this as – analyzing as an organization yes. you you referenced Alfred Chandler and your work. Yes, I'm yes, curious yes. In, in your role view of the role of the president and how you approached it, w- was that something you saw as, as pretty significant in what you were trying to do?
1: Yeah I, I, absolutely I, I appreciate your mentioning it the, the I, I spent three years at the Harvard Business School while I was writing that book that I mentioned as as a, a guest of Alfred Chandler. And I, I became completely enamored of his analysis as spelled out in Strategy and Structure, his great one of his two great books, I think, that structure fell strategy. And as I thought about, as I was studying universities, the, the eight universities I mentioned, I was struck by the fact that as these institutions changed their position, they tended to keep the same structure. They didn't think... MIT was a great example. And MIT, of course, made sense because MIT was run by people who thought like corporate guys. I mean, they, not, not that they were not serious educators, but they had the benefit of interacting all the time with chief executives, and they understood Chandler's point. So MIT always thought about structure. If we want to be this as an educational institution, what does that imply for the structure, you know? So for example, the decision that, uh, co-op needed to be closely linked to the academic program. That was a structural issue. Northeastern had operated on just the opposite principle for forever. Uh, but I realized we could not sell the idea of co-op as a first class learning experience if co-op was sitting over there in a, a completely separate building, totally disconnected, and faculty had no idea what co-op was. And when you hired faculty members, you didn't even tell them it was a co-op institution. And when they came up for promotion, you didn't ask them how they use co-op in there. You had to, so that was a Chandler, as um, when we when we looked at the, you know, if, if we need to raise graduation rates, then we need a kind of a cradle to grave Structure to manage that whole process, and that so I made Philly a senior vice president and put her in charge of everything from admissions outreach to uh, retention and and uh, uh, residential life and and graduations. That was the second structural thing. The third structural thing was we converted from quarters to semesters. Why did we do that? Because we knew we we knew that the faculty was going to need to completely redesign their majors in the context of what we wanted to do in co-op. And they weren't going to like doing that. Uh, but if, but they did like the idea of semesters. So we, we figured, you know, convert to semesters cause it's, it's something the faculty want for good academic reasons, good educational reasons. Quarters are really pretty short for learning experiences. Co-op, quarters had always been about co-op, not about learning. Uh, and so the faculty always wanted to go to semesters, but so we said, okay, let's do that because that's a good idea. But it also means you got to redesign your major, and you got to redesign your major with co-op taken into account. So, yeah. so those are just three examples yeah. of yeah. how but key ones to your success. Key ones to our success. how, yeah. a, how an educational goal translated into a structural change.
0: So uh, another distinctive thing about your presidency, I'm not aware of many others that had this, is you've referenced your wife, Elsa. Um, She was also a a senior academic leader. Um, And so I'm curious for the two of you, did you find that an asset in your presidency? Um, And how did you sort of juggle that, that? Was that her timing? I think she became President, just as you were leaving right. the presidency and, at San Northeastern, San and San so I'm, San 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 I'm wondering, was this a, a marriage bargain, or
1: how, how did you bo- both navigate that? Well, Elsa was a, a tremendous asset to my presidency, but I mean, you, you know her; she's uh, she's just a charismatic, very smart, uh, high energy person who, you know, was out of the same background. You know, she was out of Kuni; you know, she, she went to she went to public. University, and so she completely understood and loved what Northeastern was all about. Northeastern was all about, so just as a matter of uh, someone to talk to and share ideas with uh, in the evenings, as well as someone to be at dinner parties with me, with trustees and donors, uh, she was just a, a great asset. I, you know, I think she she sort of, sort of studied how to be a president and at the same time. I didn't know she was thinking this way, <clears throat> but I think this was her notion. <laughs> <coughs> once once Freeland steps down <coughs> excuse me it, it'll be my turn and that's that's the way it happened thats and, the way and it happened. she
0: was the provost at Leslie University and then a VC up in Maine before right. becoming a president
1: right 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 um she was the provost at uh, Wheelock mm-hmm. and Leslie to uh uh provost ships that were, didn't have long shelf life. And then the, her big, her big jump was when she became the chief academic officer for university of Maine system. Uh, and uh, then they, the, you know, the, she, she, she looked at a couple of presidencies after about three years up in Maine. And she was, she was a very marketable entity at, at that point. So she's, she's now in her 17th year. So, she, you know, I've been her escort at uh, Eastern Connecticut State University events, and I was her escort when I was at Northeastern.
0: And and have you have you come across any other couples that have had both both of them be presidents uh, uh, or provosts?
1: No, I've not, and I've been a little uh, I've been a little surprised actually that I would think you know be, because you know the. The two career couple has become pretty standard, and yeah, it's no shortage life. of two career academic couples, yes. but both doing it, yeah. Yeah, but we've never we 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 have never been asked to kind of sit in front of a group of aspiring academics and talk about <laughs> what it's like to be married to. Uh, every once in a while, somebody no, notices that, but uh, but it, it's it's attracted less. Uh, uh, it's attracted almost no interest among observers of academic administrators. I'm not, not quite sure why. Maybe Elsa and I are two kind of, two kind of mainstream figures for that to be to be flashy enough. I don't know. I don't know. But it's been great for us. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, it's I'm really been a Source of tension. And and
0: you know one. Potential downside to that is because the presidency is such an all-consuming thing. It's tough when both have very demanding careers, whether they're also in academia or not. Did did you find because the entertaining aspects, those other but, things, has that been a cha- Was that a challenge at all? Uh,
1: no, but but um, only because Elsa is who Elsa is. I think I, I tell the story in the book that you know when when I came up to Northeastern. She, she stayed in New York for a while. Uh, and for the first year or so I was in Boston by myself. And I used to get up at four o'clock in the morning, go to the office and I'd work till 11 o'clock at night with short breaks for for meals. Um, so then after a year she moved up to to Boston and I'm now, you know, I'm in this, my work habits are not exactly <laughs> consistent and so I tried to, you know, get home for dinner and all that. But it, it just created too much tension. She, she could see that, I, uh, that, that was, I, I just couldn't do my job on a kind of a nine. And so she said, after a very short time, she said, look, let's just not fight this. Let's just embrace it. There, there's a lot of interesting things that we can be part of because of your presidency, we can travel, we can meet with people we'd never have a chance to meet with. We can be part of Boston in a way we could, let's just embrace it and make it our life for however long it lasts. It was her decision. And so that's what we did. Uh, And so she she made it easy. I think she ended up enjoying the experience and learning from the experience, but uh, she kept it from being a source of tension. You know, fortunately her kids were grown uh by that by that time so they were out of the house uh it would have been much more difficult if we'd had little children yep. at, at the time but uh so she so it worked fine it was never really a source of issue and I, i credit her mainly uh w- w- with that fact and get,
0: get and you, did you do stuff to prepare for that next chapter because i think you took a couple of years and you were at clark and in high, Clark University higher ed there before becoming the commissioner of higher ed for
1: Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, um, that that kind of came my way, and I was delighted to do it. I wanted to I wanted to write the book that you that you've seen. Um, that that was on my mind all along, but uh, my, fun, fundamentally, when I stepped down. I knew i wanted to do something more but i didn't know what it was i wanted to give myself a year so i went as the harvard graduate school of education very kind um gave me a you know a perch for a year i taught a course there um had a chance to think about what i wanted to do with the rest of my life that's when the clark thing came along and that was a great perch but the, the commissionership was the perfect next chapter. For me, I got a a chance to deal with the public sector and learn about dealing with legislatures and public higher education in Massachusetts has always been a concern of mine going back to UMass Boston days. And uh, I thought it'd be nice to have my hands on the wheel of that for for a while, so that was that was a great last chapter. And I'm
0: curious because obviously there's a there's a huge amount of attention now. Um, focus New England, I think, has been at the forefront of it of the demographic decline and what it means for institutions. Right. And so, coming in as you did, were you aware? of 2008 that was the major recession. So, can, right. can, I I wouldn't have thought would be the the easiest of positions. So how you approached it and how did the job of being commissioner for the state system, how did that compare with leading a large private like Northeastern?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a totally different experience. You know, people like to compare public and private colleges and universities. And I think from the point of view of uh, a faculty member, there's probably very little difference um, but from the point of view of a president, there's a world of difference. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the public I was section, at Rutgers you know, before Chatham, so yes. I... So, so you know what yes. I'm talking about. You know, uh, you're, you're now not, not dealing with donors, uh, but dealing with legislators. Uh, you're not really in a position to raise much money uh, because you're, de- you're dependent on the legislature. Uh, and, uh, it's very difficult to plan because everything is year to year, you know, and, and, uh, election cycle to election cycle as we're all on pins and needles today, waiting to see what's going to happen with the country going, going forward. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, 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 I can't tell you to this day whether or not what I did was smart, but I. But I did, I thought, and I was probably informed by the Northeastern experience with this. I thought the, 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 the problem, the, the problem with the public higher education has in Massachusetts is that nobody thinks it's that important because we have these great private universities. We attract all this talent. The economy is doing pretty well. Uh, the public that really makes these kind of decisions the you know, the decision-making part of the, part of the public believes that Massachusetts is just fine when it comes to higher education. And so public higher education is there not as a strategic investment for the state, but as a social service for kids who can't afford to go to private school. That means we're not going to invest in excellence, uh, in public higher education. We're going to, make it good enough for the kind of kids who need to go there. That's honestly the way I, so, so that, that we've got to try to change that. We've got to try to convince the public that, um, we need first-class public, we, we need first-class public higher education every bit as much as we need first class private higher education. And we need, for workforce purposes, we need, uh, the kind of kids who are graduating from the, you know, uh, Westfield and Framingham and and uh, Fitchburg high schools, and who are going to stay around and maybe they're not going to run our companies, but they're going to be important players in our companies. And so we set out to both uh, convince the state that it needed first-class higher education, uh, and to uh, rebrand the system as as one of quality, not one of so-so adequacy. And so, you know, I spent my six and a half years banging on that drum. Um, and I think, we, you know, we, we made a little, a little headway. I think the state is beginning to realize, given the demographics that you talked about, you know, we've got a robust, diversified economy that needs to grow, that's full of entrepreneurs wanting to hire talented young people. Every employer of any consequence in Massachusetts will tell you there aren't enough people to fill the jobs that are that are out there. We're very high on the list of employers saying we can't we can't fill the jobs we have. Uh, we can't grow our company in Massachusetts. We got to go somewhere else to grow it. Um, I think that message has started to get through, but it's a t- it's a tough sell. The state is still, I think, pretty complacent about higher education, pretty enamored with its private sector, uh, as it should be. It's a, it's a great strength of the state. But I, I think unless the state is ready to in- invest more in public higher education, at some point it's really gonna, it's probably already, uh, it, it's a, a latent issue. It's a, an emergent issue, let's say. So I, I spent a lot of time trying to promote The excellence of the system. I think probably the most uh, interesting thing we did was try to develop a system of accountability by which we could measure learning outcomes in our public institutions for purposes of demonstrating to the public that these kids were coming out of public colleges really ready to make contributions. Uh, And we developed a very, I think, interesting system so that we could compare the quality of learning going on in pu- public institutions with what was going on in private institutions and what was going on in public institutions in other states. And that, that initiative has had some staying power. The AAC and took it over and is still, still developing it. But how much did we move the needle that we really needed to move in terms of public perceptions or, or legislative readiness to, to invest uh, at the margins? I would say at the margins. It was a, a great learning experience for me. You know, I love doing the work. I think uh, I think I added some value. Some of the things I started are still going. But you know, as uh, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, if uh, if you're if, if being Irish means anything, it means you know that the world will break your heart sooner sooner or later. And, Public higher education has some of that same quality. I think I think in in Massachusetts. And,
0: and you mentioned that you know you had been thinking about the book once you had had stepped down as Northeastern president, but you obviously because of that tenure you delayed it for quite some time. So, had you started on it before you took the the job as chancellor, yeah. and how how did you come back to it? Because it had been a lot of time had elapsed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I spent, there was I stepped down at Northeastern in the summer of 2006 and I started as commissioner in early 2009. So it was a little little over two years where, you know, I was at Harvard for that year. I was, but I was also, that's when I was starting to write the book. So I had done a lot of work and done a lot of the research, but I didn't really have uh, the architecture of the book worked out until later. So it took me another couple of years, but I had done a lot of the spade work. So when I came back from, that was one of the reasons why I stepped down as commissioner when I did. Uh, uh, I thought if I'm going to get this thing written, I better get going now before I get, you know, too much longer in the tooth. So, but it was a, a good two year slog to get it written. And One of the things you
0: touch on in the book, and I'm curious, both from the perspective of, of the book and what you did with the, the at Northeastern and as a chancellor, you talk about the sort of the two opposite schools on the role of the president from the heroic leader yep. driving it all to the actually, you know, these are huge battleships and very hard for any individual leader to have much of an impact. It's more, So I, I'm curious where, where you land in terms of the, the balance of the two and the role of the individual leader in either public or, or private hiring.
1: Yeah, I, I spend some, some time on that. In the book, um, I, I think it's, it is definitely true that the years of the heroic leader, the uh, you, you know uh, uh, Charles uh, Angels or uh, Charles Eliot sort of the world, uh, who, who could really just tell people what to do, that those, those days are gone, gone forever. Um, but the you know the, there is a body of literature which has its roots in I think in Clark Kerr and thinking about the multiversity and the battleship notion. This is just too big. The president is really just a mediator, buffeted between forces, uh, and that links to to a literature which says the way change happens in higher education uh, is. Uh, down in the bowels of the institution, with departments and entrepreneurs do, doing their thing, and that—that's how higher education really changes. And I—I I, I believe all of that is true. But I also think that there are times in the life of an institution where uh, you need—you need systematic and comprehensive change, where the business model is no longer. Were the kind of situation we had at Northeastern. And I think to do to do that in the modern university requires presidential leadership. I don't think you can do that by committee, and I don't think that's going to happen spontaneously through the initiatives of, you know, dozens of institutional entrepreneurs. Uh, so I I end up thinking that the the kind of um, what, what I think it's a David Birnbaum has written about this kind of entrepreneurial change is one of the great things in higher education that you you always want chairs and staff people and enterprising people to be inventing new things and changing the institution in ways that are broadly consistent with some vision of what what the institution is, is aspiring to be. But that doesn't add up to systemic Change. And if you want systemic change, you, you, need a, you need a leader and you need a leadership team and you need a, sta- a sustained strategy over time. You know, if the goal is how do you, how do you move the institution from, from where it is to some significantly different point, uh, I don't think that happens without presidential leadership. If you're at the head of a great university and, uh, you know, if you're the president of Harvard, for, for example... Uh, realistically, you're not going to do that. So the the presidency of that institution involves, I think, figuring out where it's weak and focusing on those weak points and fixing them. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be Harvard, and it's still going to be about where, where it is when you started. But that's what that presidency calls for, um, plus all the other you know ministerial responsibilities that go with it. But if you're Northeastern, you know, if you're and you know, the the great thing about the academic enterprise, I think, is it is finally, you know, a very competitive marketplace. And there are institutions that do need to change and that can change. And that you see, that, well, at one level, the rankings say pretty much where they are. You know, the Ivy League is still the Ivy League, and it's going to be the Ivy League, certainly for the rest of my life, and maybe even for the rest of your life, David. At the next tier down, there's churn, and there are institutions that... Uh, they can be a lot better than they were in their institutions that are going to slide. And that's great for the industry. And the, 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 the that's that's where there's room for strategy, there's room for presidential leadership, there's room for real change. And I think that's, in an industry which is fairly stable in lots of ways, being part of that churn is part of what keeps us, keeps us strong.
0: And just as a so, final question, room. so if you're offering advice now to the the next generation of Richard Freelands who are 30 years old and they know they want to be a college or a university president. What, 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 what do you look back on and say, you know, here, here are some things you need to think about, you know, things you can do to, to, to be successful in achieving that objective?
1: Um, well, I, you know, I think the first thing is, um, know what know what you're about as an educator, know, know why you're in the business and what, what aspect of the business you care about enough to want to promote and spend, you know, 18 hours a day working on. I, I had that with my notion of being an urban university. That wouldn't be for everyone, but I, but I think being real clear about what you're about and why you're doing it and not just I want to be a president and I want to be an important guy. Although that's obviously real in in some way, but I would say try to be try to be real clear about that because it's going to take up so much of your life and so much of your energy that you better really believe in it, uh, and and with that as a foundation, then I think there are all kinds of things you need to do to prepare yourself. I think it, it you know bright young guys can sometimes. Um, get to top positions too quickly before they're ready to add maximum value. I, I did feel when I became President that I was on the old side, I was 55. I think that's a little old uh, to become a college president. Um, but it had the advantage that I had really done a lot of different jobs in higher education. And a, a, th- a thing that I would absolutely say is, very few college presidents have studied the industry. Know the history of the industry. I think the single most important thing I did to prepare for the presidency was write the book uh, on academia's golden age, studying those eight universities. I learned so much that I use watching different presidents and how they operated, seeing how different institutions changed. Really, you know, I could walk into Northeastern and I knew what needed to be done. Uh, I didn't have to figure it out. And you can spend so much time reinventing the wheel uh, if you haven't really studied the history of the industry. So I would say, prepare yourself, you know, be patient, uh, be a dean, be a provost, uh, learn learn those aspects of the job, uh, study the industry, and know know why you're in the business. And one other thing you referenced in the interview
0: that I'm guessing was pretty key in that trajectory was finding the right mentor. So the opportunity you got at UMass to 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 have someone who was a real role model in the role.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, I thank you for mentioning that because I would never want to not express appreciation to two mentors uh, going back to those UMass Boston days. One was Frank Broderick, who was the chancellor and uh, one was a woman named Daisy Talycoto, who's the dean of arts and sciences. And I learned enormous amount from them. Daisy, for example, was an organizational theorist, and the whole strategy and structure thing uh, r- relates to that discipline. But uh, having people like that believe in you really matters. You know, you aspire to be a college president, but can you really do it? And both those people helped convince me that I could. And uh, I'm forever grateful to them.
0: Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking so much of your time. It's been really wonderful speaking to you and wish you all the best.
1: And and Elsa. I will send that message. And thank you for taking the time to interview me and including me on your list of uh, books about the future of higher education.